Yes. Hello, Hi. Jesse. Hi, this is Jessica Mehta. I'm here with Nina Murray, fellow poet. How are you doing? I am good. It's a pleasure to be talking to you uh, once you again. Oh, yeah, it's been a while since we did any poetry collaboration in person, so it's good to connect this way. Yes. So what's on uh, the docket for you? It is the end of the year and the holiday season, so um, I just wrote a blog post that is going to come out later in which I try to wrap my arms around what I have done because I always feel like I haven't been very productive at the end of the year, but I'll let you start this first. How do you feel about this year? This year is simultaneously the longest year ever and also incredibly short. I, I don't really sit down to kind of untangle what's been done in the past year, otherwise I would forget so many things. So it's more of a constant list of happenings and book releases and things like that that I try to keep up to date on my author's site. And I don't know, things are not slowing down at all. And it always seems to happen like this at the end of the year. Yeah, and you have two books coming out next year or just one? I have two poetry books coming out next year and one novel. Oh, and I missed the novel. Yeah, well, you know, poets, I think, tend to pay more attention to poetry. It's actually the prequel to my first novel, so it's an indigenous coming-of-age story. Right, so just for the purposes of transparency and for folks who don't know who we are, why don't you tell us what the novel is and what the books are? So the novel is, well, the working title right now is called You Look Something, which is kind of a common refrain that indigenous people hear in the U.S. when they pass as non-native. It's the prequel to my book, The Wrong Kind of Indian. Mm -hmm. And then the two poetry books are um, Bad Indian, and the other one is called Antipodes, which actually you know quite a bit about the Antipode mm -hmm. poem. But that might be pushed to 2021. We'll See. We'll see what's happening with that. And um, I just learned that you have your book release date maybe probably in February, right? I am keeping my fingers crossed, yes. And I, so this year, the Alcestis in the Underworld came out, the one that you do now. And again, as you say, I feel like it's been the longest and the shortest year because I started to feel like Alcestis came out maybe more than a year ago but no it was just april uh but things picked up speed and i have a little new chap book and the working title is minor heresies that should be coming out in february from the heartland review press the good people of the heartland review just in time for me to take it to uh, virginia book festival uh, in late march yeah, that's perfect. And I love the title, too. Oh, good, good. Because I went back and forth. I saw a road sign that said, careful when burning. Oh, so that's the inspiration for it? I know. I wanted to change it because that's such a great road sign. You know, what it meant, of course, was when you're burning your leaves, please don't set right. the rest of the town on fire. But... I was thinking about suffragists and 
you know, heretics and heresies, and I was reading a book about witches and witch hunts. So, of mm -hmm. course, I thought about careful while burning <laughs> and the cultural moment being what it is. I think quite a few of us can relate to being burning with rage, which mm -hmm. is always, you know, it's good advice to be careful while doing that. That's so, true, yeah. But my editor said, no, I like minor heresies better. So I'm just going to have to either save that title for something else or, you know, our listeners can have it if there's somebody out there who wants it. <laughs> Sounds good. And, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I don't know if you do this as well, but sometimes a book title comes before the book, so it might just be what keeps you going to write the next one. Yeah, that could be. I'm actually not that good with titles. I come up with them midway sometimes but I do walk around sort of writing down these interesting phrases or things that you see the found language like on the road sign and it apparently you know I doubt that anybody would believe me because then I went on the all-powerful internet and I wanted to find the picture of that road sign <laughs> because then I could you know that would explain what I'm talking about but I couldn't it doesn't exist it's just one sign in one county in Pennsylvania um, or it hasn't made it to Google yet and you know I, I'm curious what kind of things do come up if you Google careful when burning but <laughs> it could go a lot of different ways it could go different ways yeah yeah so research is not what it used to be you know uh, one of the things that also happened this year and it's makes me happy but it's also a lesson in never throwing anything away i had an old essay about walt whitman and whitman's translations into russian that finally found a home in an online uh, general interest somewhat academic publication that was just a good fit for it and it's been in my drawer for eight years Oh, yeah, that's not that's not really old, though. I, you know, so part of me wishes I could find what was really my first poem, well, my first poem as an adult. Um, 20 years ago as an undergrad, but part of me thinks it was probably terrible. Yeah, but, but you don't know. Sometimes that stuff passes the cringe test or you rewrite it or, or something like that happens. I'm a believer in finding finding homes for things you know? yeah it's a good yeah it's a good philosophy especially for a poet and there's so many options and platforms and places these days too it's it's a little in ways it's easier than it used to be it is it is I think that's one of the big differences that um, I feel this time around because you know but our listeners don't I was overseas for six years until 2018. I came back in August of 2018, and I am getting ready to go overseas again. Um, now, now where, are you, where are you going this time? So this time I'm going to Belarus. For how long? Um, well, two years at least, and we will see how it goes. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that long. Yes, we have the option of extending to three years, but we'll see We'll see how things go. And this just happened recently. So, again, for those of you who don't know me enough, I am a member of the U.S. Foreign Service. I work for the State Department, and I travel the world doing the work of foreign policy. 
or so it says in my resume. <laughs> And something, uh, something mm -hmm. I love about your work is it seems that you're, and you know, I'm sure you despise this word as well, but are often inspired by your travels. Um, especially when I was reading Moscow Metro, which I would love to hear you read and hear more about how, I, I guess, kind of displacement mm. plays a role in how you see yourself as a poet and how it drives your poetry. Interesting. Well, let me read that because you are so kind to ask for it. And it is one of the poems that quite a few people like, which is great. So no pressure to anybody who is listening. Moscow Metro. The Shakespeare scholar says, we are no longer an audience, but a crowd of spectators. Especially here, I think, facing each other on the subway car, each buffeted by his own thunderstorm on the seed's meager moor, and all in mute contract not to pry, not to hear the lines we can see each other mouthing, a string of spectacular specters. Only the man in the corner, corporeal, head bent over a large, bruise-edged bouquet of white asters, small petals tangled like hair. You know, that captures what's such a common daily experience for so many people in this kind of ethereal, beautiful way that we often, I mean, we're just so caught up in our own worlds, but it also takes us somewhere else and allows us to see, I've never been to Moscow, but it gives me a feeling of what it would be like to see that through the poet's eyes. Well, thank you. And you can tell there are some things that are different. For example, Moscow Metro trains have seats along the sides of the train. So you face each other, literally, or you stand in, in the middle. And they are also, quite a lot of them are quite old. And so they're quite loud. And now when everybody has earphones or is talking on the phone, even on the Metro, you can see people's mouths move, but you can't hear what they're saying because it's either loud, well, partially because it's loud and partially because you're trying not to pry, right? You have made the, con the conscious decision not to interfere and not to understand what's going on. So in effect, to see somebody who is not talking on the phone or engaged in something, but just is sitting there carrying whatever their luggage is or their burden is that they're moving from point A to point B makes you wonder what kind of errand they're on and, you know, makes you think. And what, I'm curious, what's your relationship with Shakespeare? Because I um, I kind of have an unusual one, because I was raised in Ashland, Oregon, which is home of one of the largest Shakespeare festivals in the world, if not the biggest. Oh. And I, I didn't develop a relationship with Shakespeare until... 2017. So that's a little huh. embarrassing, <laughs> but it's true. Well, it's confusing because I first encountered Shakespeare as part of, you know, school reading curriculum. And at that point, you're reading in translation. So you're necessarily run into a conversation about 
different translations and how it goes and what you know sort of what are the questions and things like that. I remember Romeo and Juliet was part of our eighth grade curriculum, which I think is just misguided because Juliet is 14 and you give it to 14 year olds to read and they're all like, well, look at her. She's doing all kinds <laughs> of stuff. And you want us to do what? Um, so there's that. And then once I got learned English to the degree that I could read in English well enough, I sort of rediscovered Shakespeare and reread things and, you know, and there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful Canadian show called Slings and Arrows, which is set in a town that is fictionalized uh, town of Niagara, which is home to another big Shakespeare festival. And it's set in the Shakespeare producing company. So it really brings to life kind of the backstage of producing famous plays and whatnot. I must have been reading something or watching something at the time. And that just that mention creeped into the poem, but I honestly cannot remember what it was. <laughs> so it goes. So it goes. So it goes. <laughs> yeah. But on the topic of random mentions that um, creep into poems, I like, well, who, okay, who doesn't? Maybe some people don't, but I like, I, I, I'm beholden to lists and um, things like variety packs. I can never refuse a variety pack of anything. That's just beyond me. Um, if somebody offers me like a choice of one of each, I'll be like, of course, that is perfect. So I love poems that are lists. And there is the theme, variations on the theme by Mark Strand. There is, it's a poem about the hour. And then my husband wrote a poem about light. And it's one of those that I think he wrote in his undergrad. And it's still good if I could find it. <laughs> so I wanted to write a poem about things that are like flags and banners. And the reason I wanted to write it is because we lived next to a metro stop, a particular metro station where you came up the escalator and on the wall was this huge mosaic. And by huge, I mean enormous. The entire wall was covered in mosaic and there were two panels and one was a parade of young people who are going to go into space or something. And the other one was, I think, a parade of young pioneers and there were red Soviet banners all over it. But if you can picture it, sort of, it's made out of small square mosaic tiles and each tile is about quarter inch by quarter inch, so it sparkles. And, and it's got this, depending on when, when you see it, it catches the light differently and of course when it's winter and it's half dark it it starts looking a little menacing because there's this big waving banners that are kind of like coagulated blood and that's what got me thinking because of course I'm always up for a very cheerful metaphor <laughs> and then I went and I started thinking of all the words for things that are like banners so pennants flags things and looked up the lovely word vexillology, which is the study of flags. So with your permission, I'll read you my vexillology, variation on a theme by Mark Strand. Yes, I would love to hear it. And you know, before you do, I the, the listeners don't know this, but just the um, how you format this poem and many of your poems 
when it's written, it is list-like. And I was wondering why, you know, you rarely use um, punctuation or capitalization. And you answered that for me. It's the, the appeal of the list. Yes, yes. It's <laughs> the informality. And I just find capitalization especially somewhat distracting. I can, uh, I, I can come back to that. So, vexillology. Okay. The pennants hoisted by maples to announce their arrival into the fall. The flickering signal of the setter's tail that charts the shorn field. The resolute chevron of the entrenched pocket silk, the bulwark of style. The St. George's ribbon and flimsy fesses on commuters' backpacks and rear-view mirrors, maroon like the vacuous bubbles of shed beetle shells. The banner on the metro wall and coagulated drops of scarlet mosaic, Lenin's bellicose ghost. The stiff sheet of the paper's front page, pieced from fragments, like soldiers' quilts stitched from clean bits of despoiled uniforms. The pinstripe buntings of our umbrellas set out to dry side by side. The heavy curtain we draw in surrender as we turn ourselves blind to the coming winter. It's an incredibly timely poem to be sharing, too, mm. as we close the year. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Um, I remember some of the things I know, and this is lists also... To me, they are a compression of so many things. I mean, it takes a lot of stuff to put on the list, at least for me. And so I, I can see how somebody might say it's overloaded, but these are all things that were happening kind of more or less at the same time in my mind. And accumulating to this darkness of coming winter, which is no joke. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, you know, it's funny when you said that you have a love of lists and also variety packs. And to me, those two don't necessarily align. Um, I don't know. I think of variety packs as like kind of jumbled together, whereas lists are more neat and you can tick them off and uniform. But, um, well, as sure. you kind of said in the poem of um, the spoiled uniforms, but yeah. um, I, I'm seeing, yeah, this kind of recurring theme in a lot of your work and um, both lists and the variety packs, you know, kind of give a nod towards collections. And um, I was just looking at some of your work and collection needs and mm -hmm. that it's a, yeah, it's a theme that I hadn't realized in your work before, but now that we're talking about mm -hmm. it, it's very prevalent. I guess we all have our, our favorite subjects and um, yeah, that's, I'll have to reread your work now with this, this new information. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because in a way, you know, what is to me, at least I have less experience putting together collections of poetry. And so a collection of poetry in a way is not necessarily a variety pack, but it is more like a deck of cards, maybe. You know, there are things that go together and complement each other. And I think that's where it maybe comes from. When I was a kid, very, very small kid, my grandmother 
and great-grandmother played cards, different games that I didn't understand, and they had this old deck that was just beautiful. It had kind of a Russian fairy tale designs for kings and jacks and that kind of thing. And so I always wanted to play with it because I just wanted to look at these pictures and that's how I started to understand that there are, you know, coats and they go together and there's four of each. And um, I'm sure the deck has been played to death and is destroyed and, you know, <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. But that's, I think that's where it came from. So. Yeah, I, I can see that. And it kind of, I mean, when it comes to putting together a collection of poetry, what are your thoughts on sequencing? Do you enjoy it? Do you think you have a natural affinity to it? Because I absolutely detest sequencing any poems, including my own, and I'm always so grateful when an editor can kind of prod me in the right direction. I'm with you. I'm yet to see somebody who knows what they're doing, even though some people told me they do. <laughs> people tell me that too, and I'm just like, well, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'll, I'll trust you on that. Right, so... But but what people told me was that they, you know, they print everything out, they lay it out on the floor, and then they start looking at what goes together. And what's in, what ends up going together is maybe two or three pieces. <laughs> so I'm not sure how that helps you with a book of 60, for example, yeah. unless you wrote it that way. And but I haven't had an idea yet that I could write as a book length sequence. Oh, no, no, I am um, not at all. You know, that, that, that would take a big idea. So in this case, I had a very vague, the only organizing principle I had was that in order to have the book, and I was working with this metaphor of Alcestis descending to the underworld, I pulled poems from my archives that were written in the voices of others, not in my voice or whatever, the voice of the lyric speaker, but specifically in in masks, in speaking for others. And I put all of those in the middle, which is where kind of the underworld fits, so that if you were so inclined, you would understand it as a collection of ghosts that Alcestis encounters when she is no longer with us and before she comes back. I mean, that's a very, yeah, sensical and logical, that's probably how I would do it as well. My, my personal strategy when sequencing is just, I want to put what I consider the best poems first. So in case, <laughs> you know, judges decide to read it, like, this is brilliant. I don't need to read the rest. I don't need to so, read the rest. Yeah, no. I think this is a little bit more uh, tactical. Well, I did have an editor who kind of embraced this whole idea and then moved things around. And she actually asked me once she read the, once she, in fact, agreed to take on the manuscript, she said, you know, do you have anything else? Because I feel like there could be something else that's in between here that needs to fit in and glue this thing together. And I sent her a couple of other poems that I didn't think fit anywhere, but she thought they did. 
-hmm. And then I did write a sequence of poems, like just a series of prose poems, which I rarely write. Um, never, except when she told me to do it. And they fit. And you know that sequence because the, the it continues, because then I had an idea for um, after your performance piece, I wrote that one. Yeah, yeah. So now it lives beyond its original purpose. Well, that's great. <laughs> Which is kind of fun. But I think it also gets this question gets uh, maybe I'm the being the bureaucrat and doing what I do. I may be super sensitive to this, but so much of what we do and so much of what you kind of see in terms of our world, our sphere of knowledge and understanding outside is making sense of patterns, data, mm. and disconnected bits and pieces, right? So collection needs is, if you have, if you know what your needs are, you are ahead of the game. We frequently, we frequently just take in data and you know, rely on our brains or the algorithms as the case may be to make sense of it. So I don't think there is anything to be worried about in not being able to sequence your poems because that's also data. Mm. I feel like I started out sounding really deep, but then <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I can I can definitely see it as data. I mean, in, in my day job, I basically am always thinking about search engine optimization um, mm -hmm. for content that is not mine. And I, I can I can see that and I can see the need to see, you know, this doesn't quite fit. There needs to be some other piece that maybe you need to create or maybe that's been sitting there before. So I, I can see how that could be like puzzle piecing. Um, but as you know, I kind of think of the antipode poem as right. putting together a puzzle. And while it was an interesting challenge to write that book in such a way of there being very strict rules that I had to follow, self-imposed rules. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, I'm, I generally steer clear of any kind of form poetry. Every now and then, I'll feel like trying a sonnet or something but for the most part it's free verse but there's there was a it I, I didn't feel the same joy as I normally do when it was mm. all about piecing things together in a way that I felt was supposed to make sense it's, mm. it's obviously a necessity because at some point you're going to have to figure out or your editor is going to have to figure out what goes where but that's one of the benefits, I think, of um, for me, for pursuing more traditional publishing routes. Mm -hmm. I think that those gatekeepers, like in-house editors that aren't necessarily, you know, your friends that are good at editing, mm -hmm. can kind of be that necessary... Um, it feels like an imposition, <laughs> necessary imposition that... They, they're bringing in these skills that you know you don't have, but you might not mm -hmm. seek out in that sense if left to your own devices. So while I, I can see the purpose of it, and I, I can see, honestly, when it does make sense, I've, I've been really lucky to work with one editor who really got me. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, 
I don't think that's a skill I'm ever going to develop myself. So I really need to continue working on building that kind of support around me of people who get my work and can make it better. And it's so much harder than it sounds or should it be. is. It is. It is so important. I have been teaching this workshop on professional development for writers and you can it, it's technically 13 different topics that we cover but it mostly comes down to several key points and probably the most important of them is how do you build and cultivate that network that and must be really difficult to teach how to do that i think you yes <laughs> you have to come at it from different dimensions because it's such a mix it's it's an organic result of a lot of different things including personality and not everybody has personality for that mm -hmm. uh, which the goal then is if you don't have a personality for that what are the strategies that you can use what are the just what things do you put on your to-do list and what habits do you um what habits do you cultivate to override your natural proclivities? Right. And, you know, I'd be at a later date really like to hear more about that. I'm kind of in the very rough stages of the first draft of an essay. Mm. Mm -hmm. Kind of my coming to the realization that I feel like as writers and maybe especially as poets, a lot of us had similar experiences when we were much younger. Um, a lot of us were introverts and like always in a book and all of those different stereotypes, I think ring true a lot of the time. Um, mm -hmm. They did for me. And then we're kind of told that, you know, one day you'll, and I can't stand this phrase, find your tribe uh -huh. and everything will come together. <laughs> and when writers are all together, it's all fantastic. But there's still very much like the cool kid click. Uh -huh. And you still like don't get it. And you're like, yep. Why is everyone fangirling over this person? And um, yeah. it, it's, it's, you know, it never ends, really. I remember very clearly my a mentor of mine telling me, you know, what you need is a group of women who will support you. And I'm I thought, sure I'll go get that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I thought, well, that's great. You know, I'll just go find some. <laughs> and that was like you say about 20 years ago a little less than that and just now and having had the experience in fact it's it's something that I learned in my job because I'm still an introvert but the job is to connect people and to make connection to people make connections to people and it's nice when you have something to encourage people with something to give people but there are ways around that. Let's say you don't, but we all have resources like time, attention, and coffee. The which three is most important things and resources that a person has. Pretty much, that's it. Time, attention, and coffee. And the older you get, the more valuable they become, both to you, but also to other people. The more people get what other people's time is worth. And I'm very glad to be at an age when everybody understands sort of not to waste each other's time. Yeah, how precious it is. Yeah, that's really, really nice. So thank you again for taking the time to do this conversation with me. Um, but 
then there are also things like, and I think this whole thing about, yes, hanging out with other writers is wonderful, but it is better, I think, when you have a more diverse group of contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see, I've never had personally a really strong core group of writer friends, and it's always been more diverse, but when I do, I do have friends that are very much in the literary community, and it, it's quite a bit like being in a silo, it seems, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of incestuous. I'm talking about here in Portland, Oregon, might be mm-hmm. a little different where you are, but yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, that's, that's my experience with academics and translators. You know, by being overseas, I have effectively sort of cut myself off from any kind of writer's community. <laughs> But the nice thing is then you come back and you're like, well, I've been overseas for six years, so no wonder you don't know who I am, but here I am. <laughs> and let's catch up. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's nice to have that excuse other than, or at least it's an internal excuse for me for not feeling like a phone behind my classmates, you know, that FOMO that I'm sure we all have. Well, such and such has a, you know, fourth book out and such and such is you know, doing this and that, and mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. all of those things. So let's, I don't want to also take too much time from our listeners and our potential listeners. Let me ask you this. What do you wish for in the coming year? You know, this is, it, it's its not super meaningful. I'm building it up like it is going to be, but even for <laughs> things like birthday wishes, like cancel. I always wish for the same things and the same three things. And it's health, wealth, and happiness. Mm-hmm. And all of the different iterations that that could and should become. And, you know, that's, that's it for me. I, I don't really like, I know I don't seem this way to you, but I don't really like super concrete planning. Mm. I like more kind of broad, what comes should come, and I do trust in the universe, Um, Uh but just general positive energy. And um, the the one step that I have taken towards that already, and it's surprising, surprising to me that it's helping me, is starting a daily short meditation practice. Uh And that gives me time to also try to generate hope for things to come in the new year and beyond. Mm-hmm. And I, do, I don't have quite as meaningful of a question for you, but it is something that I'm curious about if you mm-hmm. want to answer it quickly. Okay. Um, what is it like to be married to someone who is also a poet? Aha. Well, fortunately for me, he doesn't write poetry very much because his true strength is fiction. Still so, a writer. <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Still a writer. It's it's wonderful because he happens to be a very good writer. So I have an in-house editor. Mm-hmm. I have somebody who gets me because you know, we've been together for, it'll be 17 years next spring. He basically was my kind of 
that final the 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 whatever it is that one has to do to move from being a very good English speaker to being a writer in English. Mm -hmm. I did that because my husband was a writer in English. So he gave me things to read. And it sounds like very manipulative. Like he sat me down in front of the TV and was like, here, which was kind of the case, but he also wanted to consume that. I mean, we were together very young. And so it was our kind of formative years when we read stuff together and uh, and watch stuff together. And I challenge you as well. OK, I'm not a native English speaker, but I challenge you to, to how high level of a speaker you have to be before you understand Calvin and Hobbes comic books. <laughs> that is the bar, my friend. And you, you've got it down now. I got it. <laughs> there came a point when I've got it. Um, so, so it's really, really nice. I mean, it's also, it's nice because we're both gainfully employed right now mm -hmm. and things would be not so nice if we were both trying to make a living of our writing, but I think we just concluded that that's not going to happen. So I, you know, I enjoy it when he is writing and I get to read what he's written and he enjoys, um, reading what. I have written when I'm working and he pushes me a little bit and I help him plot uh, <laughs> because I'm I'm the one who's like, well, just kill that character. <laughs> or let me tell you something. There is this secret stolen painting. <laughs> or I want a ghost of a dog in the You're attic. Really into the ghosts and witches. <laughs> I am. I have a very you know, little people kind of mythical imagination. I want to see an elf behind every bush or something. Yeah. Yeah. That happens. So, so, so it goes. So I wish for all of us for health, wealth and happiness, or rather at least a continued meditation practice and, you know, not feeling like we're not writing what we're supposed to be writing. I think if that were to come, true for me I'd be really really happy <laughs> well it's not just a new year it's a new decade so oh, that is really scary yeah well I think on that note I'm going to say goodbye and stop the recording stop the recording and say goodbye okay